Hi, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is our Sunday Morning Extra, our podcast featuring a memorable story from our most recent show. It's a conversation that offers insights beyond the broadcast. On this episode, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Jeff Lynne. It's a living thing. If you don't know the name, you definitely know his music. Jeff Lynne has been a hit maker for decades, first with the Electric Light Orchestra and then with the Traveling Wilburys. Well, it's all right. He also produced the last big hit songs by the Beatles. David Pogue spoke with Lynn in his Los Angeles recording studio. Jeff Lynn, welcome to CBS Sunday Morning. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice that you are touring again. So they tell me. <laughs> uh, yes, we are. And it's going to be fun. It's not too long this time. It's just the right length. It's 20 shows. There was a time when you used to say you didn't like touring. There was a time when I hated touring because in those days, the, the equipment and all the, all the stuff we were using was all just... It didn't have real pickups for cellos and violin and stuff like that. Uh, the monitors were like on the floor, wedges, and down on the floor. You couldn't, you very rarely hear what you're singing, so you'd have to start shouting. And of course, that ruins your throat, because you can't really, you have to lay off a bit the night after to try and protect your throat. But, but why now? Why after 40 years, on the 40th anniversary of uh, Out of the Blue, I mean, what, what other band is just as popular 40 years later, the Beatles maybe, yeah, I know what you mean. It's really odd. I, I, I find it shocking. Every time I go into these arenas, come out of the dressing room, go onto the stage, you know, we're hiding behind the curtain a little bit, you know, looking, at the, looking out at the crowd and going, I, I can never be more amazed ever, every night. Just go, what? It's filled to the top, right to the roof, you know. And they're all loving it. And I can't say any fairer than that because that's, that's the most marvellous thing that, that could ever happen for me. But do you have any theories as to why? I guess the tunes have lasted long enough for, for people to think like they're playing for their kids and their kids might get to like them. And at the concerts, there are you know, quite a few kids there and younger adults. And it's just great to see them all enjoying it and singing. And when you see a little, you know, little sort of 12-year-old kid singing all the words to Mr. Blue Sky, it's just super. I think, wow, if only they knew I, I wrote that 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about your, the way you compose? I've, I've, I've heard it said that you, you don't write music, notation, no. but you are known for these incredible arrangements, the choir, the string orchestra, I mean, some complex chords. Yeah. So how do you write the songs without writing the notes? Well, it's just play the chords and you go, oh, that's a nice one. Like I've just found a new one or something with a, with a ninth. Yeah, I need to get there. You know, and then I'll just lay it down onto my iPhone or whatever, or any, that's all there is now, really. <laughs> or any other phone with a re, you know, recording voice memo or something. Yeah. Just put it on there and then I know what it is then by just listening to it and go, oh yeah, that one. 
I don't have to write it down into on paper or anything. Not even chord symbols, guitar chord symbols. Um, no, because I just put it in the phone. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, the hardest bit is on the piano because I'm sort of a novice piano player compared to guitar. I play much more guitar than I do piano, but I do like writing songs on piano because you get some ex unexpected bass notes if you miss by one, and wow, oh, that's great. <laughs> and I'll have that, you know. And it, sometimes it just happens by a fluke. You play a chord that with no idea what it is, but it sounds, wow, that's good, and it will go right into this one. Yeah. And so I will start. What I am is a, is a chord hound, I suppose. I just love chords, and I love chord changes. And the way they change, they can affect you, really, like send the back of your neck with your, all your little hair standing on end, if it's a great chord change. And they go, oh, beautiful. And then all I've got to do is think of a song and another five minutes of music. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got that bit. <laughs> <laughs> but not just chord changes, but, but section changes. There are these, like, like the end of Mr. Blue Sky, a lot of people know about that long orchestral, yeah. that so cool ride out. Um, or in the middle of, uh, you know, Turn to Stone, there's that super fast section, or, or the, the Spanish trumpet at the beginning of Living Thing. Mm -hmm. um, you dress up these songs with totally different musical styles and, yeah. and sometimes just interrupt the beat with a total break. What is, where does that come from? It's just, you know, the fear of getting boring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Am I getting boring yet? <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. I don't want to make something happen. Just whatever, we, call, we used to call them wizards. Like, oh, I need a wizard in here to, to take your mind off this tune that's been going on for days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just something that just turns left all of a sudden. Wow. And, and then comes back to normal again after, after, you know, a few bars. Just little things to, to add interest and so that I don't get bored with it or think, imagine that everybody else is getting bored, like, now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> And, and sometimes those sections are full-on pseudo-classical. So the whole idea of ELO was, wasn't it rock band plus a classical yeah. string section? It was, yeah, all those years ago, like in 1971. Yeah. So where did, where did that idea come from, and how it do came, you know about classical? Well, I'll tell you how. My, my dad was a, a mad classical person. He, he loved the classics, and he knew all the songs, all the tunes all the symphonies, all the bits and pieces of all of it. And, it, and I, I wondered how he knew, because my dad it wasn't really a, like a white-collar worker. He was, a, he was actually like a labourer. He used to lay the paving stones on the paths of Birmingham streets. He was the foreman of, of the Birmingham Roadworks Department. And how he knew all these eyefalutin classical numbers, and he knew what key they were in, and he knew who was playing the lead fiddle and all that, you know, and all that stuff. And I'd go, how the hell do you know all that? And he says, oh, I just know it. Wow. And he did, and he really did. And he was, he had, the, he had his radio or his records on. The whole weekend would be just classical. Or he would use his, sometimes, his like, his pop tunes, like Bing Crosby and, you know, and all them sort. And, uh, but mostly classical. So I used to get, get it, you know, rammed down my throat, basically. <laughs> and I used to get really like some of it, you know, like, oh, I love that. I used to like the poppy ones better, the poppier ones, the more melodic kind of straightforward ones. Mm -hmm. 
rather than the, the fancy, you know, discordant ones. I, I was never a fan of that. And stuff. what did your dad think of your music? Not a lot, really. <laughs> <laughs> he, he never said much about it. He, he, I'd give him the new album, whatever, and uh, the only time he said, like, a compliment probably was, he said, blimey, you wrote that for me, didn't you? Because it was one called El Dorado, and it had all these strings going, and all that, and a lot of bits of interludes of, of classical style with these 30 guys that are, you know, rented for the rent-a-classic. <laughs> and so he did say, you wrote that for me, didn't you? And, and I said, oh, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose I was just trying to prove I knew a little bit of something. That's how parents are. They yeah. always disapprove of their kids' music, even, yeah. even what they're listening to. All right, so you have, you have quite a track record. So there was ELO, and then you produced Tom Petty, and Roy Orbison, and Brian Wilson, and George Harrison. And then you knit all these together into the Traveling Wilburys. Yeah. Now, the Traveling Wilburys, uh, on the first sessions we were doing with George, uh, of, the, of his new album, Cloud Nine, that we were doing. he just come out of it one night, he just said, you know what, me and you should have a group. And I thought, that's, a, that's nice, <laughs> that'd be good. And uh, it turns out, I said, who should we have in it? And he said, Bob Dylan. I thought he was gonna say like Ted Wilson from up the road, you know. <laughs> but no, it wasn't, it was Bob Dylan. Okay, that's a good idea. And then, I said, can we have Roy Orbison? And he said, <laughs> I did. And he said, yeah, I love Roy. We used to tour with him all the time. I knew that, of course. It's like the old party game about who would you invite to dinner if you could have yeah, anyone. Right. Yeah. Who would you want in your group if you could have anyone? <laughs> and then we both wanted Tom in it because we both thought he was really cool. The all-American boy, you know. He was like, he'd give us some, some edge. And that's how the, I haven't forgotten anybody, have I? No. No. Oh, me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five. Forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, five. Yeah. yeah. Um, and despite being called the Traveling Wilburys, you, you didn't perform live, did you? No, we never did a live show, unfortunately. I wish we had it done. We did quite a few videos, but never did a, a live performance. Uh, you know, I don't know whether we could it would have ever worked out with, you know, with those, all them different schedules going. Right, right. And where does the name Traveling Wilburys come from? Well, me and George used to keep messing about every night, you know, um, trying to come up with a name. And we, we came up with uh, a couple, and then I think I came up with traveling, the Traveling Wilburys, but it's gotta be the Traveling Wilburys. <laughs> does it mean something? Where does the Nothing name? Nothing at all. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it's just like a name. I, I pictured it as a name, like with a, a caravan with the traveling wilburys on the side. Oh. And like touring, you know, on, a, on an old banger, you know, like an old bus or something. That's how I thought of it as like an amateur hour family group that traveled around from place to place. Georgia even had amazing ideas like, I got it. We'll rent an aircraft carrier and we'll go and land at different ports and invite everybody on to watch us. And we'll play for them. And I thought that's a brilliant idea that, because I think it was a bit more difficult than, <laughs> than just saying it. <laughs> I think so. So the, the source of all information, Wikipedia, said that the name came from glitches in the no. mix. That's not true? That's not true, no. Where you say, we'll bury in the mix, we'll bury it? No, No, that's not true. Okay. <laughs> None <laughs> we'll, of them are true. We'll fix that after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You're also a funny guy. Thank Nobody you. expects that. Um, would you mind telling, for the thousandth time, would you mind telling how Mr. Blue Sky came about? Um, I'd got a chalet, like a little chalet in Switzerland. I'd rented one. Had all this gear delivered from a music shop because uh, I just wanted to do the album, you know, just be there in no distractions. So I wrote most of it there. I wrote probably 10 of the songs there in that place. Mr. Blue Sky was one of them. And um, I didn't finish the words till I got in the studio. Some of the, some of the tunes were all finished without any words. And I, I did those in the studio, in, well, in the hotel room, mm -hmm. which the studio that we used was called Musicland. And it was underneath a big hotel, like in the basement. Strange place to record, but uh, it was good sound. And, you know, I liked it. It could be a bit claustrophobic, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Been underground for like 12 or 15 hours a day. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's pretty weird, but it just sounded good in there. So it, it was a good thing. And we had a good engineer there. And so I wrote, um, wrote it in Switzerland, most of it. But then I probably did probably however many work more there are, probably four or, or five or six or whatever it is, uh, actually in the studio or in the hotel room. But they all sort of gel together, like you wouldn't know which ones came from the Swiss mountainside or the right. or the underground bunker in Munich. <laughs> but then there was something about the weather during that period, right? There was, yeah. It was for the f few days when I'd been trying to make this tune, I played on electric piano. I had a bass, electric piano, um, and a few other little instruments, acoustic guitar. The weather was vile and there was, you couldn't even see out the window really, it was just thick fog. And and one day it cleared up and it really did clear up. And uh, and that was, the, well, it sounds a bit corny, but it's true. It gave me the idea like as gradually through the day, I thought, Mr. Blue Sky, because it had popped his head out and there he was. In, with nothing to block him off because I'm up on a mountain. And so that gave me the, the idea. I mean, it didn't give me the words that took weeks of sweating and trying to get those words. But because there's a lot of rhymes, internal rhymes and external rhymes and whatever you call them. Wow. And, and we should take this moment to clear up something for posterity. At the very end of Mr. Blue Sky, after the cellos go down and down, come to rest on that final chord, there is the processed vocoder, as we, vocoder. As we say, that everybody thinks says, Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> yeah. But that's not what they're saying. It's not what they're saying, is it? <laughs> you want to tell what it really is? Yeah. It's, it says, actually, please turn me over. Because it's at the end of a suite called a concerto for a rainy day. And um, it was on side three. It was the last track on side three. So we wanted to, to turn the thing over because it was a double album. So it had a side three and a four. So it's asked you to turn the album over so you can carry on listening to the album. That's all it was. Just very silly. And to this day in concert, it's yeah. please turn me over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>